All righty, go ahead, open your Bibles up. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We got a, a, a big chapter to go, to go through today. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going verse by verse through the entire book. And we're getting right towards the end here. We're in chapter 14, just a few more chapters to go. Uh, and we'll be uh, transitioning in the summer into a series called Great Stories, in which in the summer we'll be looking at a, a number of remarkable stories from the Old Testament, stories like Adam and Eve, stories like Noah, stories like Ruth and Esther. And we'll be studying those stories from the Old Testament, looking at what it means for our life today. But today in our text, we, we come to part of the closing argument of this section of 1 Corinthians. And we've been dealing for a few chapters on this topic of spiritual gifts, Okay. Now, what are spiritual gifts? We, in chapter 12, we learned that the better term for them is probably manifestations of the Spirit. There are ways that the Holy Spirit comes upon a follower of Jesus and empowers them specifically for the work God has assigned that particular Christian to do. And one of the big ideas is that every follower of Christ has specific work assigned to them. No one's off the hook. There's no such thing as passive Christianity, right? There's no radical Christians and then, you know, just everyday Christians. It's no, every single follower of Jesus gets given the Holy Spirit and gets given a variety of different gifts and tasks and assignments to do. And God will always equip you to the work he calls you to do. So part of our job as Christians is figuring out, okay, what are the gifts we've been given? That's part of my job as, as the pastor is to come alongside you, help you understand what gifts you've been given, and then help you find your lane of what it looks like to, to work with what Christ is doing. Well, today we come to two particular spiritual gifts, the gifts of prophecy and the gift of tongues, okay? Prophecy and tongues. For some in the room, uh, this is gonna be like really fascinating because this is a space you've lived in and you know very well and, and you're, you're regularly in the conversation on the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And I hope I can provide some clarity of what I believe the Bible teaches on those topics. For others, maybe if you're unfamiliar with this part of Christianity, what is oftentimes labeled as the more charismatic end of Christianity, um, this might sound like a totally bizarre message. Speaking in tongues and prophesying? What? So I'm gonna try to speak to both groups in this room and really pastor you through this text. Let me start with a story. When I was a missionary overseas, I served in Thailand, and uh, I, I got over there, and I immediately, I was partnered with a lot of folks who did come from a much more charismatic background where they were speaking in tongues and using some of these sign gifts more than I had ever seen. I, I had never been around anybody doing anything like that. I remember one particular day, uh, we were in a prayer meeting, and again, I'd been in plenty of prayer meetings at this point. I'm a missionary overseas. I, you know, I'm, I thought I kind of knew this thing, but I hadn't been in a prayer meeting like this. And uh, in the room, when we started praying, about 10 minutes in, you know, we're in this hot Thai room with like fans blowing everywhere. It's just kind of an intense room already. And uh, all of a sudden, around the room, everyone starts speaking in tongues out loud, okay? Now, to me, I had no experience with speaking in tongues. To me, it, it just, it sounded like gibberish. That's the first time hearing this, it sounded like gibberish. They were speaking in what, what now I would understand them to be saying was a heavenly language, not an earthly language, but they were praying out loud in what they thought was a heavenly language. And, and I remember sitting back and just being very overwhelmed at this experience. And, and I, I wanted to be faithful, and frankly, I, I, I really, as a, as a Christian, I wanted to say, what is going, like, I wanna be a part of this, but I just have no frame of reference for what's happening. And then towards the end of the meeting, one of the women in the room, she stood up and she said this. She came forward and she said, this is your father speaking, I want you to be encouraged. 
I want you to be encouraged. This is your father speaking. And the prayer meeting came to an end, and we went on with our day. What, did, what do I do with that? It was a bit of a bizarre moment because I, I think I, I recognized the, the depth of the moment. If, if what just happened was real, it was kind of like a burning bush moment, right? I mean, Moses in the burning bush where the father came down and spoke verbatim to his people. And if that was what I had just been given, then I, I better never be the same person. But was it? And, and how, how would we go about determining, is this legitimate? Because if you look out over Christianity, there's a lot, of, a lot of crazy stuff happens under the name of Christianity, right? There are Christians that do a bunch of goofy stuff all over the world. And sometimes you see it and you say, okay, that's not real. That's not the Holy Spirit. But, but how do we determine these questions, especially in that story where there's this kind of back-to-back of speaking in tongues and then some kind of prophesying? What should be normalized in the New Testament church on these topics? Is that a normal experience that we should try to replicate here in the church body? How do we know when someone's gone too far with these gifts or abused them in a way that God actually didn't design them for? Is there such a thing as going too far? Are there any boundaries with these topics? Let's remember our context. A few chapters in here. We're talking about spiritual gifts. Paul, at this point, on the topic of spiritual gifts, he said, look, you've got a big problem. So this whole thing is a correction passage. He's saying, your problem is you have elevated those who are speaking in tongues as the most important people among you. He called them spiritual ones. That's because that's what they were calling themselves. They, they saw themselves as spiritual ones. And you can kind of get the sense why that was happening, right? If, if that's not something you'd ever seen, and then you see people speaking in a heavenly language, you could kind of get a sense, oh, wow, they, they must have a, a depth to them that's something superior to the depth that I have. And Paul comes in and he says, whoa, whoa, we have to root spiritual elitism out of the church. That is not how this works. God gives different gifts in different degrees to different people, and it's going to look different, and we're not placing one person above another because of the unique set of gifts they got from God. It's all a gift of grace. But then... The question is, what do we do with these gifts then? So, okay, we, we don't want spiritual elitism, but the gifts are here, so how do we steward them faithfully? What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read this entire passage. Now, as a, it's a longer passage, so you have to bear with me, but let's do it this way. Let's pretend like we're in Corinth in the first century, and we're in this church, right? And we just got this letter from Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we love, and, and we know the problems that are going. We've seen the tongues thing happening, the prophecy thing happening. We know that there's elitism happening. And now we're gonna read this section together as if we just received it from Paul. And we're gonna see what we can do with it, okay? Chapter 14, verses one through 33. Paul says this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies, prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church might be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's being played? 
And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. All right. Let's see what principles we can draw out of this. I'm not gonna be able to go verse by verse like I normally do because it's so much text. We'd be here for a few hours. But I'm gonna try to go through this text and draw out a few specific principles to guide us as a church family. First of all, let's talk about tongues. Speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift that must be stewarded appropriately. Simple, right? Spir uh, speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift that must be stewarded appropriately. Now, as with all the spiritual gifts, not everybody gets the same gifts. Some people get one gift, some people get another gift, and so there is a degree and a variety of gifts, so we know right out of the gate, not everybody will receive the gift of being able to speak in a tongue. Now, what, what is speaking in tongues? The first time we see speaking in tongues in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, but this is a very almost bizarre moment. It's a very important moment in church history. It's right after the Holy Spirit comes down, comes upon the apostles, and if you recall the story, I just read the story with my children this week. If you remember the story, a, a mighty sound like rushing wind, like a, like a hurricane came into the room. Tongues of fire appeared above their heads, and then we read this, that the apostles started to speak, and we're told in Acts 2, 5 to 6, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation, so a bunch of different nations are gathered. 
And at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the apostles speak in his own language. Fascinating moment. So all these different nations are gathered around. Peter and the apostles are speaking. They don't know all these languages, but the people from the nations are gathered by them and hearing them in their own tongue. And so the gospel is going to the nations. Now, what was happening in this moment? This is a bit of a unique moment, and we don't particularly know. Some people think that in this moment, Paul, or not Paul, the apostles are speaking, and they don't realize it, but they think they're speaking their own language, but they're speaking a heavenly language, and, and somehow God is spiritually interpreting it in their ears in a different way. I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's necessarily clear from the text. What seems more clear to me is that they, the apostles were just speaking their own language. Like, let's say I'm speaking English, but if there's someone in here from Spain, they would be hearing me in Spanish. That's amazing. But this is the kind of miracle work that God does. And there are stories like this all from across the mission field, just so you know. I, I shared a story a few weeks ago of a friend of mine, not quite the exact same story, but a friend of mine was telling me that his family member, so this is pretty direct, just one, one person removed, uh, so it's not a story from a story from a story, but one person removed from me, he said his family member was on the mission field, a short-term trip. He was a medical doctor going to a tribal nation uh, to, to go administer the gospel, went with a translator because he didn't speak the local language. He got there. When he started to speak to the local native, the translator just wouldn't translate anything for him. And he was frustrated. He just assumed the person was able to hear him in English. And when the, the conversation was over, 20 minutes later, the translator said, I didn't know you spoke fluent whatever the tribal language was. He said, I don't speak fluent tribal, whatever the language was. And the translator said, well, you just did for 20 minutes. Okay? Those stories are true all across the mission field. Many of our missionaries, Amy, I'm sure you've got some stories, and she's nodding her head right now, stories like that from the mission field. And one of the reasons it happens in places where the gospel is going into new territory like that is for that reason. It functions as a sign, a sign gift, to reveal to those where the gospel is going for the very first time that this new message is of God. So just like it was in the book of Acts, the gospel was going out into brand new territory. And there was an explosion of God unlocking ears to hear the message of the gospel. It's interesting. It's actually a reversal of the Tower of Babel, where they were scattered because of, they couldn't understand each other. Now they're gathered because they're understanding each other. Now, uh, this, this is well documented. There's many cases. Now, that's the first understanding of speaking in tongues. So what I just explained to you, the, the historic understanding is that you are speaking and someone is hearing you in an, a human language, okay? Throughout church history, that has been the predominant view and understanding of what speaking in tongues means. There has also been a small vein throughout church history from the very beginning Typically a fringe. Now, I'm not judging this by any means. I'm just saying this is what church history is. There has always been a fringe group that has had an additional view on speaking in tongues. And the additional view is that what speaking in tongues can also be is speaking, praying in a heavenly language. So not speaking in, like, I don't speak French, but all of a sudden someone's hearing me in French. But I'm actually speaking or praying in a heavenly language. Now, that had always been a somewhat fringe view, always present. You'll find writers throughout church history writing about this. However, in the last century, this has become a predominant view of speaking in tongues, especially in the Western church, that, that there is ability to speak in a heavenly language. And you can see from this text where that comes from. And I'll say, as I study this text, it, and I'll just be honest with you, 
uh, I have struggled with that particular view for many years, up until the last three to four years. I've struggled with it, not because I don't know very many faithful people who say they're able to do this. In fact, in this room, many of you pray in a heavenly language on your own. But I've struggled with it because I wanna see it in the text before I get it from experience. And I think that there is good reason to believe from this text alone that, it, that one of the gifts that God gives is a prayer language in a heavenly language. It, it's not the only way to read this text, but it certainly is possible, and I think it gives validity to it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. If you read the flow It does seem like he's talking about an ability to speak in a language that's incomprehensible, that even the speaker himself doesn't know what he's saying or understand completely. Again, this is a mystery. That's the word he uses. He's uttering mysteries in the spirit. Now, I sent yesterday in my weekly email two resources that have been the most helpful. Whenever it comes to uh, trying to understand a biblical text, many people will write on their experiences and what they think is true, but they won't do great biblical exegesis. They won't really work the text. The two books that are most helpful, if you want follow-up study on this, one of them is by Wayne Grudem. It's called The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today. And the other one is by D.A. Carson, who's a wonderful scholar. And he does a study on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. That's in the title. I can't think of the the name of the book right now. But those two authors, D.A. Carson and Wayne Grudem, largely agree on this subject. And I think theirs is the best scholarship I've seen that this text certainly provides the possibility for speaking in a heavenly language. But, but, throughout this text, he puts boundaries on how the speaking in tongues ought to be used in order to, quote, build up the church. Three times in this passage, he says, we do this in an orderly way to build up the church. So what are the boundaries? What, what, what are the precautions he gives so that things don't get out of hand? He says, number, verse, verse one, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So what I want to say is earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I actually see nothing wrong with praying to God, and I have prayed many times. I do not speak in a heavenly language on my own. I want you to know that right now. That doesn't make me less or more spiritual than any other person in this room. It's just not a gift that God's given me. I've prayed in the past to receive that gift, and I have not received it. And I'm good with that. God is good to give his gifts as he sees fit, okay? But I I think there's something healthy about pursuing them, pursuing them. God, if if it is your will, might you grant this to me? that I might use it for the upbuilding of the church. Wonderful gift, putting verse one into practice. Tongues in public must always have an interpreter. All right, this is gonna jar some folks who come from charismatic backgrounds because I'm actually going to rebuke some charismatic practices right now, okay? So tongues in public must, hear the word, always have an interpreter, okay? No exception. So verses six through 12, Paul is talking about how in a public setting, a person who's praying in a heavenly language, if that's how we interpret this text, that it's a heavenly language. By the way, some people, like for example, John MacArthur would say this is not speaking about a heavenly language. It's only speaking about earthly languages. So there's, dis- there's disagreement here. But let's assume it's speaking about a heavenly language. Verses six through 12, he's talking about how in a public setting, a person who prays in a heavenly language, if all they're doing is praying and it, it sounds to its hearers like gibberish, like something they don't understand, it's just like a noiseless musical instrument or an indistinct bugle. No one knows what to do with the sound that's being made. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he can interpret, right? 
So if you're gonna come into a public setting and you're going to be speaking, pray, God, can I have an interpretation of this? Why? For the upbuilding of the church. Because I don't just wanna make noise, I wanna upbuild somebody when I come together. That's the point of the gathered church, is that we encourage and mutually edify one another. Verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Okay, so here's the command. If someone is going to come forth in a gathering, either in this gathering or any other time the church is being gathered, for any, for any instance, and they're going to come and they're going to speak in a tongue. And by the way, there's, there's some incredible stories. This has not happened to us in our church, but there's been scenarios of faithful pastors that I trust who they have said, someone comes up to them and they start speaking in, in another language. And the pastor will pause the service and say, does anybody, is anyone able to interpret this right now? And oftentimes it's a human language and right there, there's someone who can interpret it. I've even heard stories where the pastor says, this is remarkable, that's the third point of the sermon that I had to cut out because I preached too long. That's the kind of stuff God does. That's how he uses this gift. But notice, Paul says there must always be an interpreter. So let's go back to my story for a second. Let's go back to my story. Was it appropriate for the whole room to be praying out loud in tongues without, without an interpreter? No, that was not appropriate. That is not how this gift is supposed to be stewarded. Why? It wasn't building anybody up. It wasn't, it wasn't building anybody up, okay? So whenever the church is being gathered, whenever we're praying, we, we are not to be praying out loud in tongues unless there's somebody interpreting it. Now, in the world of people who accept that, uh, that there is a heavenly language, which I'm included in that, I, I realize I'm drawing a pretty firm line here. I'm saying always. And some would say there are exceptions. I don't see exceptions in this text. I think it says always. And so, hear me, this is a rebuke of many charismatic practices. This is not that their churches are failures or anything like that. I think they're getting this wrong per this text. Sometimes you'll go to a more charismatic church. I know many pastors I'm friends with in this city. This is the practice. You get there, and the, maybe the worship pastor is speaking in tongues between songs. Or even the pastor will stop what he's doing and speak in tongues between giving the message. No interpretation happening. That's not okay. That's outside of the bounds of what Paul has given us here. 1 Corinthians 14, verse five. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church might be built up. What's he saying? Why is prophecy better? Well, because it builds up the church. And then the reason tongues would be equal with prophecy is if someone interprets it, then it's functioning like a a prophetic word building everybody up. Now everyone's understanding what they're saying as opposed to just kind of not knowing what the words are they're saying, okay? Second, we reject what is oftentimes called second blessing theology, okay? Second blessing theology. When I was in Thailand, uh, the, group, the group that I was with, this more charismatic group, they were telling me that until I, I spoke in tongues, I had not been filled by the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit, so their, their take was, they read the book of Acts, and they said that oftentimes when the Spirit comes on people in the book of Acts, it immediately follows with this miraculous speaking in tongues by the group. Now, that doesn't always happen in Acts, but often it does. And they said, Rafe, if you've never spoken in tongues, you need to speak in tongues if you want to be the most effective missionary you can. And I struggled. I was, you know, I was 21 years old. Uh, and I, I, I'm sitting there, I'm, well, I want to be an effective missionary, that's why I'm here. I, I, tra- I left everything behind to, to be the most effective missionary I can possibly be. And if that's the gateway to being as effective as I possibly can, then I want to do it. Oh, I labored for months over this. I, I, I struggled with God. 
And I came to the conclusion that they were completely wrong. We reject second blessing theology. There is not a second blessing that's poured out and evidenced by speaking in tongues. Now, that is not to say, that is not to say that in your life of following Jesus, if you pursue Jesus, he will not at various times and different seasons of your life come on you with different degrees of power and affect you for ministry. It happens. It's happened in my life. That, that happens. But that is not a second blessing that is always evidenced by tongues. And here's one reason why. I love what D.A. Carson says, great scholar D.A. Carson. He says this in his book. It would be a strange calculus which concluded that a modern charismatic, that's someone who believes in second blessing ministry often, a modern charismatic lives under a higher spiritual plane than did, now he's gonna lift off some famous Christians here, say Augustine or Balthazar or Jonathan Edwards or Count Zinzendor or Charles Spurgeon since none of them spoke in tongues. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if to get the full dose of the Holy Spirit you need to speak in tongues, it's a bit bizarre that some of the greats of, of Christian history that the Holy Spirit used for remarkable amounts of work never spoke in tongues. That's a tough theological principle to drive home. Tongues is a wonderful gift that God often uses in New Missions Frontiers, and we are welcome to pursue in this church. Later on at the end of this message, I'm gonna to get to practical applications, what this means for this church, but those are some basic principles. Speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift that must be stewarded appropriately within the bounds God has provided. Secondly, now we move to prophecy. Prophecy is, here we go, ready? This is gonna be really complex. A spiritual gift that must be stewarded appropriately. Okay, same thing. Prophecy is a spiritual gift that must be stewarded appropriately. Now, as with tongues, we're gonna to have to be precise in, on our wording because this is a gift actually more than tongues that is being abused everywhere. Maybe you, uh, you might not see this. Maybe you're not in some of the circles I am uh, or you don't browse YouTube as much as I do. <laughs> but, but if you do, uh, you will see that this gift is being abused right, left, and center and we need to stand on God's word, how we use this gift well. Why? Because we're interested in building up the church. Verse three, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. My wife tells a story. When she was a little kid, uh, someone from her church came to her, I don't wanna get this story wrong, Sarah, so I, I'm sorry if I do. My wife's heading up the children's ministry over there. Uh, but uh, someone came to her mom and said something like, God has told me that a terrible accident is going to befall one of your children this week. Something like that, Sarah? Close. Can you imagine what that did to Sarah's mother? First of all, she was wrong. Okay, they were wrong. Secondly, okay, what did verse three say? The one who prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Okay, that is not the kind of word of God that God's gonna be giving to people. That would be an, that would be an abuse. That would be, and it was an abuse. It was someone thinking they had the gift of prophecy, saying it wrongly, and can you imagine being a mother getting that message? That'd be terrible. And it was terrifying. Uh, secondly, it seems that prophecy was a pretty normal thing for the New Testament to experience among its members. So this is important. Uh, when we read the New Testament, it seems that many people were getting prophetic messages from God within the New Testament church. Listen to verses 29 to 31. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. This is different than what we do on a regular Sunday gathering, isn't it? I mean, we don't actually have formal, like, line up. You got a prophetic word? Line up over here. Actually, we do that at members' meetings, and I'll talk about that later. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. 
for you can all prophesy one by one so that all might learn and be encouraged. What's, what's he interested in? Order in the church. There's no point in everyone yelling out a bunch of stuff at the same time because then you're just making a bunch of noise. You got a message from God? Let's hear it with clarity and understand what it says. Now, when it comes to prophecy, there's functionally, I put together this week, three different views. There's more than that. Let's limit it to three. There's the Puritan view. Uh, I have a wonderful book on my bookshelf called The Art of Prophecy from a Puritan writer, and it is How to Preach Well. So the Puritans largely thought the gift of prophecy was how to preach the word of God, what I'm doing right now. Um, I don't actually think that's correct. I don't think that's actually what I see here. I think at times, actually, there's some overlap between preaching God's word and what prophecy is, but I don't think it's limited just to what a preacher does when he comes up and preaches. Though, there's good argument. It's not just that they were wrong. They tried to make good arguments for it. There's the cessationist view. Again, I'll pick on John MacArthur. I love John MacArthur, but on this particular issue, I disagree with him tremendously. The cessationist view is that gifts like this, particularly prophecy and tongues, ended around the time of the apostles, okay? They ended around the time of the apostles, or if you extend it a little further, ended once the New Testament Bible was put together and we had the word of God to rely on. At that point, they say, we no longer needed prophecy because we had the word of God. It's actually a good argument. The problem with it, it's a great argument, but it's not an argument from the text. It's an argument trying to piece together church history because it actually does seem like after the canon came together, prophecy in tongues began to fade, not completely, but from the degree at which we saw it before that time. Well, that's actual history. So putting it together, and they come to the cessationist view. Cessationist, it ceased. I don't think that's right. And the reason I don't think it's right is I don't see it in the text. The, the instructions I see in verse one is to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And if I were to lay Christian history and our experience over the text and, and give rules for the church from experience rather than the text, I would stop being a pastor. So I gotta go with the text on this one. I believe it's still possible. Then there's what I call the general sense view. The general sense view says with prophecy that a New Testament, quote, prophet, someone who utilizes the spiritual gift of prophecy is very different from an Old Testament prophet. And there's a reason for that. Old Testament prophets spoke verbatim the words of God. When Isaiah spoke, they were the words of God. When he wrote as a prophet, he was writing the very words of God. The actual syllables he wrote were God's word as God spoke through him in human language, giving God's word. There was clarity. And so the Old Testament prophets could finish anything they said with, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Why? Because God was speaking through them. Now, over the four centuries before the, the last prophet ended, four centuries before Christ, and, and then this huge Greek influence took over the entire Mediterranean world underneath Alexander the Great. This is just world history. And then there were 400, 400 years, and then Jesus came. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the word prophecy, because of Greek culture spreading throughout, throughout the world, the word prophecy did not mean what it once had meant to the Old Testament saints. It was used for a thousand different things. All the Greek cults of the day, all the Roman you know, cultish religions were using the word prophecy for a thousand different things that was not anything like Old Testament prophet. And so I think the New Testament saints came up with a new word for the 12 new prophets they had. They came up with the word apostle. That's why we call them apostles. They're continuing the work of the Old Testament prophets. But because the word had been watered down, they used a new word, apostle, which means sent one. 
And that, that, that designates them in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And when the apostle speaks, what is it? It's thus saith the Lord. That's why we read 1 Corinthians as God's word. They were writing just like the prophets were of the old day. Now, what about the gift of prophecy? The general sense of you says that it's possible for God to give inclinations, senses, premonitions, although that's a goofy word, uh, feelings, ideas that need to be communicated to the church. But because we're sinful and because oftentimes in translating a premonition that God's given into our heart, as we communicate it using words that we choose, we may be getting our communication wrong. Though the sense was given to us by God, the communication of it might be a little wrong, which would be why in verse 29 he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. We're trying to determine what's true in here. What do we need to hear from here? You don't need to weigh what Elijah said. Elijah spoke the word of God, right? Verse 32, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Meaning the New Testament prophets, when you're speaking a prophetic word, we submit it to the word of God. And that's the standard. The standard is not what they said. Now this has problems with it, I'll say. This view has problems, but I think it's the best attempt at understanding this passage as faithfully as I can. The, the challenge is, is that we then have to believe that God is in the business of giving murky messages. It's strange. He's very clear on the word of God. We know that, not murky here. The challenge with this view, of which I think is the best interpretation of scripture, is that at times it may be that God will give a sense and that will be enough to guide his church in the moment. I think I've oftentimes experienced something like that in, in preaching. Okay, and let me, say, let me share how that works. In, in the, old, in the uh, old days, before we moved to a 10 o'clock service, we were preaching a nine o'clock service here and a 10 o'clock service at our Park Bridgeport church. And I would oftentimes do the run from South Loop to Bridgeport. And you know, I, I, I'm up here with a manuscript right now. I, I word this whole thing out. Now, I, I don't read it when I preach, obviously, but it's there. I, I have my plan of what I'm gonna be saying. And I have my plan, oftentimes I have my plan of what I'm gonna be saying, but then as I'm preaching, God will give me a new direction. And sometimes it happens and I'm like, no, I gotta stay on target, I'm running late already. But other times I lean in and I begin to preach and many times I have sensed that when I do that, the Holy Spirit will powerfully use that moment more than other moments in the message that I preached. As if that was a message right there that needed to be communicated. Now here's what'll often happen. In those days, I would then get in the car, drive over to Bridgeport and as I'm driving, I'm thinking, what was that thing I said that wasn't in the manuscript? I gotta remember that, how did I say that? And then I'll get to Bridgeport and I'll try to do the same thing that I did here. But it wasn't for Bridgeport. It was for South Loop. That's how prophetic messages work. It's for a particular group in a particular place. It's momentary. And when I try to deliver it there, I get halfway through the same thing and I say, man, this is flat. That, I, it, it's, it's not the same thing. I think that was a prophetic message in this sense. Now, different people might use different words to describe that experience. They might use a word of knowledge or, or, or some other word. I think maybe this is what pro, the prophetic messages were in the New Testament day. Now, let's go back to my opening story. Was it appropriate for someone to stand up in the room and say, this is your father speaking? Be encouraged. No, it was an abuse. Now, this doesn't mean this person's a heretic. I actually still follow this person online and, and, and God uses this person wonderfully. It means they made a significant mistake and it should not be repeated, 
okay? We have to have a humility. Whenever a prophetic word is being given in the New Testament, we, there, it should always be like this. I have a sense, and I could be wrong, I could be wrong, but I have a sense that God is, wants to say this. And then we weigh it, we, we listen to it, and we consider it. Let me give you another example. A while ago, a, a woman from this church came uh, to me and shared a message that she believed one of the leaders was abusing their spouse. She said, I have a prophetic message to give to you, Pastor Rafe. One of your leaders is abusing your spouse. She pinpointed the person specifically. And I said, okay, that's not true, but let, let's, let's entertain it. If this is, a, I, I, want to, I want to listen to it. I, I, want to, I want to consider that this might be God's word for us. So what did we do? We took it seriously. We came home, we talked to both spouses, we, we, we listened to the friends, the best friends, and we asked, could there be even a hint of truth in this? Three, four weeks we sat on this thing, and then we went back to the person, we said, hey, look, I need to, I need to tell you something. We don't wanna, we're not trying to bash this right now, but you have abused the gift of prophecy. That was a false prophetic message. And we wanna let you know that what we'd like to do is come around beside you right now and, and help you to not make that mistake. Praise God, it was on a leader that's a very strong leader that, that could handle having a false accusation like that against them. But we can't have you doing that in the rest of the church. That would not be building anybody up. And uh, the response was that that person just left the church, never saw him again, right? So, so now here, here's, here's the church trying to put in corrective rebuke, faithful, let us build you up so this mistake doesn't happen again. And rather than leaning in, they ran away, which is a second sign of a false prophet, to be honest with you, okay? We're all allowed to make mistakes in this. This is confusing stuff. I'm allowed to make mistakes in this. But together as a church, we, we work towards Christ with one. D.A. Carson, again, he says it this year. One begins to suspect that prophecy may occur more often than is recognized in non-charismatic churches and less often than is recognized in charismatic churches <laughs> because I think there's a lot of abuse that takes place. I've seen in the last few years, I've seen all types of, of phony prophetic words. Donald Trump is gonna steal back the election in 2020. Well, the time came past. Pr Christian pr prophetically proclaiming this thing. Uh, I saw one video come online that said, China was going, I'm, I'm a prophet, China's going to invade America by the end of 2020, or 2023. And it was like, and it got all these people up in a tizzy, like, ah, oh, what's gonna happen? The year came and went, it didn't happen. It was a false prophetic word. And what is it? What is it? It's people abusing what God has designed. This is a gift for the upbuilding of the church. And so I'm trying to equip you. As you navigate these spaces and you see these things taking place, you now have some faithful boundaries. Prophetic words are subject to the word of God and prophetic words must be weighed by the leadership of the church to see is this really for these people right now? No one should be making prophetic words over nations or anything like that. They're for specific groups of people. One of, the, one of the things Paul's attacking here, I'm gonna wrap up on this, this idea here before I get to my application. One of the reasons Paul's saying this is they have, they have lifted up sensationalism as the highest ideal in the church. And we kind of make the same mistake, don't we? Why were they elevating the gift of tongues and prophecy in, in, the, in this church? Because it's sensational. I don't know, if I saw someone doing this, I, I know some of you and I, I, I know some of you who do this. And I think it's, it's amazing when I see that. That's why I've prayed for the gift before in the past. I'd love to do that myself. There's something that's wonderful about seeing it because it's supernatural. And I think as a church, you could easily see why they're lifting this up as something spectacular. And all of a sudden, you have these remarkable people who do spectacular things in the church. Oh, remarkable people who do spectacular things in the church. There's only one of them, and his name's Jesus Christ, right? 
And the message of the church must always be that every spiritual gift must always serve the one remarkable person who does spectacular things. And it's Jesus. And the great spectacular thing that he has done is he took your place on the cross. He went to the cross for you. And that is the message that the church needs to beat over and over and over again. And when we get lost in in conversations on spiritual gifts and we start elevating one over another and debating over this or that and spiritual elitism in the church and we get our eyes off of our king with holes in his hands and feet because he went to the cross for you because we get this wrong and we get a thousand other things wrong through sin. But Jesus loves you and he went to the cross for you. And that needs to be the message that we beat over and over. Every use of every spiritual gift whether it's teaching, administrating, hospitality in your home, gifts of mercy, speaking in tongues, or prophesying, needs to point everybody to Jesus, our King, who is Lord, who went to the cross for you. Any other message, and we're misusing the spiritual gifts. And most of the time that we get these two spiritual gifts wrong, the person we're elevating is the one with the gift. We're building their ministry, we're building their campaign, we're building their finances. It's a joke. It's a joke. And as a church, we need to get back to Jesus on the cross. And all of our gifts, with humility, say, he's king. God has equipped you with gifts, church. Pursue them. Know what they are. No Christian's off the hook on this one. He has wonderful work for you to do, but it's not about you. It is about using everything God's given you to steward towards letting Jesus be made known. Now, let me close with a couple applications briefly. How do we live this out as a church? Well, a couple things. One, we have a very orderly service, a very orderly service. What you experience when you come in here is well-planned. I believe that the Holy Spirit works through good planning, but we also are open to how the Spirit leads on any given moment. And oftentimes, we will linger in prayer much longer than we need to because the Spirit's doing something in the moment. This shouldn't be so orderly that that an outsider who comes in here is comfortable just to sit through it like it's theater. Any non-believer who comes in the room should be uncomfortable at some point. We're Christians worshiping Jesus We pray fervently in the spirit. We talk about things that are uncomfortable for non-believers. All those things are true, and yet there's order to it because of this chapter. Secondly, one of the spaces that we most often make room for prophecy in the church is in our members' meetings, in our members' meetings. And here's how we do this. Regularly, I invite members to come forward at those meetings to give updates and to share what God is doing. And in fact, then, and what I, I don't do this every time, but regularly what I do is, if anyone else has a message for the church right now, something that God is laying on your heart, will you speak that to us? In fact, every Sunday, those who gather for our Sunday morning prayer at 9.15, that is the first question I ask every week. Do any of you have a message that God has been laying on your heart, either through your devotions or just in your heart right now that needs to be communicated to us? And in that way, I think we're putting some of these gifts into practice. Spiritual gifts are wonderful gifts that need to be stewarded for the glory of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you and we, uh, we confess that we have touched on a passage of scripture that has been the center of much division and debate, particularly over the last century. It has caused denominations to split from each other. It has caused uh, Christians to divide with one another. And God, that's not what we want. We long to see your church built up, as the text said. We wanna see all the gifts used towards building one another up. And so I pray for this body, Jesus, that there would be a great uh, humbling mercy extended to this entire church family. Uh, That many of us in this room are very different in the giftings we have, and, and there's great permission in here to be different. 
to utilize those giftings well, but God, I pray that every person in this church would use the gifts you've assigned them for the upbuilding of the kingdom for the glory of Jesus. Anywhere we've gotten this wrong, anywhere we were thinking about this wrong, forgive us quickly, Jesus, and get us on the right track. We love you, and we lift this up in Christ's name.